So all the way from Johannesburg, um, migrating this way, uh, we have Pastor Seviwe who leads our Bryanston Church, and um, I am not saying this as a form of flattery, but you are definitely under my top five favorite people. Uh, so it's my wife, uh, and then Jesus, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you see where you rank. <laughs> No, so um, there's, a lot of, there's a couple of people that really inspire me incredibly, um, that challenge me, that help me to think deeply about faith and how faith correlates with what we see around us. Um, and I really want to honor you and I want to thank you for visiting us tonight. Um, yeah, and just to share the word. And I know that God has planted something in your heart that is in season for us. So yeah, as you come up, I'd love just to pray. You guys are welcome to go and visit the Bryanston Church. Um, it's not that far. They don't have an evening service yet, so I'm not threatened. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> Father, we thank you for the word that you've prepared for us tonight, Lord. And we thank you that it is a word in season. We thank you, Lord, for the preparation that has gone into the word. We thank you, Lord, for how you've spoken to Seviwe, Lord, but also how you've broken his heart for the word tonight. Um, and we just want to declare, Lord, that we receive, that we receive the word and we thank you, Father, that you speak to us. Amen. 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 Thanks, Jacob. Hey, good evening, everybody. Can you hear me? Oh, don't worry about this. Yeah, we're going to put it down there. Okay. Yeah, it's fine. Um, you guys hear me? All right. Well, it's good to be here. Finally. I uh, heard so much not only about you, uh, but also about this beautiful venue. Uh, if, you, if you heard correctly what Jacob said, I'm under his top five. I'm not in it. But I'm under his top five, so. <laughs> yeah, good. That's how I interpreted it, so. It didn't get to my head. Um, is this sound okay? All right. Um, can we just wait on the Lord for a bit um, before we get into the Word? Uh, it really is a privilege for me to be here. You have no idea. Um, uh, I, 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 most of the time, I don't get the privilege to leave what I uh, uh, do. I really love home. I love my church. I love the people I get to do this with. I really do. It takes a lot for me to say I can't be there. Uh, but this happens at 5 o'clock, so I couldn't have an excuse. <laughs> but also it's Yaku, so I have to do it if it's Yaku, you know. He's that great. Let's wait on the Lord for a bit, and then we'll jump into the Word. Yeah, Spirit of God, we just wait on you. Come and minister to us, Lord. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, your mercies I see, all I had needed, thy hand had provided. 
Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Great is, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. You're in a series called Valleys, and I think this is the last week. Um, but the echo on this mic definitely is the last week. Um, I got to hear Harry preach. Uh, I think, Yako, you did one uh, with your wife and broke out the news to all of us, which is so dope to hear. Uh, I also heard, um, I, I'm happy to use that one. You can take it out. I don't mind. I can use this. Is this one better? Oh, that's loud. All right, let me take this off because my ear is going to get weird. Um, I'm going to touch you now. I don't mind, bro. <laughs> so good. So good. I nearly said something that was going to be a joke, but the context. <laughs> you know. Um, so you've been in the series, Valleys, and we're finishing off the series today. The whole point of the series actually stems from a framework of Psalm 23. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Even though I walk. The key in that text is that when you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, is that you have to keep walking. That's the text. Even though I walk, through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, the whole point of that text, David is basically escaping. His son is, wants to kill him. In those days, your livelihood, your significance, your, 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 your notoriety, you know, the thing that makes you you, the thing that makes you important was family. They didn't live in a world whereby being an individual was more important than being in a family. And so for your son to chase you, wanting to kill you, eh, it's bad. It kind of means not only have you lost the kingdom, but you've lost everything of significance because you're without family, you're without kingdom, you're, you're without the things that make you you. And when David chooses to define who he is, when David chooses to cry out to the Lord, he doesn't say, Lord, I'm your king. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm your son. He doesn't say, Lord, you know, I am your friend. He says, I'm a sheep. You're my shepherd. He's speaking of complete dependency on God. A, a sheep, by the way, when it's chased by a wolf, when it's hunted by a lion, it has no form of defense. What can a sheep do against a wolf? What can a sheep do against a thief who's trying to steal it? It can't do anything. And so normally what happens, the sheep has to depend on the direction of the shepherd if it's going to live. David said, listen, man, you're my shepherd. 
That's the whole point of the text. And so as he's thinking about this, he's considering himself as a sheep, and he gets to this part of the text where he says, man, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk, the, the Hebrew translation is, even though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, deep darkness, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because sheep were known in those days, even now, that when a sheep is scared, what does it do? It stops walking. It, it stands still. It goes, finds a little corner, and it, it shivers under bushes. That's why it ends up getting cuts on its faces or in its body, and it begins to bleat. It lets out a sound, but the sound of fear attracts the enemy. That was just for you who said, sure, over there in the corner. It bleats. It's not crying out necessarily to be saved is crying out because it's afraid and if the shepherd hears the sound first then he comes and the, and the sheep is so scared that he has to take the sheep and put it on his shoulders and carry the sheep home that's what Christ did for you you couldn't do it by yourself he had to grab you by your feet put you on his shoulders and take you where you couldn't go yourself David says, no, I keep walking in the valley of deep darkness. I don't stand still. I'm not bleating. I keep walking. That's what the series is about. It's about how do we keep moving when the guarantee of valleys comes your way. Let me, let me give you a prophetic word. You got a great word at the back there. Uh, what is her name? Do you actually remember the name? Lana, Yana? Praise the Lord. That guy remembers the name because he corrected you. You got a prophetic word. Let me give everyone a prophetic word. Are you ready? A valley is coming to you. An iceberg is coming to you. Pain is coming to you. David says, here's what I do when I hit the valley. I keep walking. I don't stop. I, I keep moving. Today, I want to help you process how you keep walking when you hit the valley. How you keep walking when the iceberg hits your ship. How many of you ever watched the movie Titanic before? Okay. The movie was so long. How many of you are still watching the movie Titanic? <laughs> it came out like 15 years ago. I think I've got 20 minutes left. You know, then I'm, I'm probably done the movie. Um, movie was great. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, I was in high school when it came out, or, or maybe primarily, I can't remember. We bunked our hostel to go and go watch the movie, got in trouble when it came back. And you know, they had that scene, every night in my dreams. Anyone remember that scene? That whole movie called me to go get a girlfriend. Like, I didn't want to, but after watching that movie, I was like, man, I need a lady. You know? I want to hold someone like that, you know? Needless to say, that didn't work too well, but praise the Lord, I'm still here to talk about it. Um, the, the interesting thing about the ship, the Titanic, the beautiful part of the Titanic is the upper part of the ship. It's beautiful. They had an orchestra. They have beautiful food. Everyone is, is dressed to the nines. They've got waiters giving them all kinds of things. They're dancing. It is a complete bash. When the iceberg hit the Titanic, it didn't hit the top deck. It hit the lower decks. And it, the reason why it sank is that they took too long to visit the lower decks. 
Because only the poor people and the slaves lived in the lower decks. Why should we care about them? Why rather uh, should we care about the things beneath the surface of our soul where we can keep living on the social media platform of our lives? Keep telling people how good everything is. And even when things are bad, paint it in a beautiful way. The higher deck of your life is an experience that you have sometimes. But if you are courageous enough, to move down to the lower decks of your life, to move down to the places where the iceberg hits and the water runs in. And if you don't stop the, the bleeding of the ship, if you don't stop the, the ache, the brokenness in the ship, that's when it's sink. If you have the courage, every nation high felt, to move down to the lower decks, you will keep walking in the valley. It takes courage to look beyond the beauty of your higher deck and choose to walk down to the lower decks. What I want to talk to you today about is that if you want to keep walking in the valley that you will definitely get is that you need to go to the lower decks of your life. And so I want to ask your permission. Can I treat you like I'm your pastor today? So I'm going to read a lot of scripture. I'm, I'm going to read, I'm going to give you three big stories. Normally I'll just take one scripture and go for it. But this kind of topic has been kind of deep in my heart because I've been going through my own valley for a while. So I've got all these things and Yaku doesn't invite me out here much. So I'm going to give you three sermons in one. <laughs> all right. Here's what I want to talk to you about. When you hit your valley and if you want to keep walking, here's what you need to do. Three things. One, you need to embrace brokenness in your life. Two, you need to embrace wrestling with God in your life. Three, you need to embrace vulnerability. Three things. You see, we don't um, escape valleys. We walk through valleys. You walk through them by embracing certain things. Embrace brokenness. Embrace wrestling with God. And embrace vulnerability. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Father, today as we hear your word, teach us. Teach us your word. Give us courage to go into the deep surface of our life, to go underneath and learn how, Lord, to experience your grace in the lower decks of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke 7. We're going to be at verse 36. All the way to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, speaking about Jesus, asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, and said to him, 
Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender, that was a good time to say, no, don't say it, Lord. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other owed him 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus has just been invited to dinner by a Pharisee by the name of Simon. Pharisees were people who were not just religious, they were kind of popular. They were kind of um, people who had means and the kind of people that if they rocked up and they spoke to you, kind of listened. And so Simon, the Pharisee, invites Jesus to his house. You would never invite anyone to your house in those times for dinner if you weren't intending to have some kind of relationship with them, some kind of friendship. He invites him to the house, and, and here's the reality. Normally, our theology tells us this. If you reject Jesus, Jesus will reject you. How many of you kind of know that kind of theology? That, you know, when you reject Jesus, he goes, well, I don't know you. But What's about to happen, there's about to be someone who's actually not rejecting Jesus, but actually wants relationship with him. And even he's not going to cut it. You know why? Because he wants relationship with Jesus on his terms. What, what, what he wants, he wants to be seen with Jesus. He doesn't want to follow him. He, he wants to be mentally stimulated by Jesus. He wants Jesus to do stuff for him. Because if you hang around Jesus, this supposed miracle guy who's doing all these wonderful things, it's going to give you more cred. He wants Jesus on his terms. And watch how Jesus beautifully and lovingly points stuff out to him, this man, Simon the Pharisee. So, like, like most of you would, if you had someone seemingly important come and visit your home, you would invite a few friends because you kind of want your friends to know, hey, Yaku's in my house, all right? And so there you are. Why are you laughing? Yaku's important. Don't laugh at Yaku. <laughs> yeah, sorry, buddy. <laughs> and so that's what they do. They, 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 they invite, this guy, Simon, invites a few people and the way that you would have, like, thank you, bro, the way that you would have a feast in those days is that you weren't sitting on a table. You would lie down. You would recline like on a couch. One hand, one your 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 shoulder and one in one, in one on on the couch and your hand extending out, reaching and grabbing food and eating. That's how they did it. 
right? And then, because there's people in the neighborhood and there's a big feast, this was not just a select few of people. There, there were a whole bunch of people in the room having conversation because you, you want people to create the vibe. They might not be at the table, but they're creating the vibe. They, they're helping the community know whatever's happening in this house is dope. It's amazing. And in walks this woman. The Bible is polite when it says she was a woman of, of, she was a sinful woman. Actually, this woman was a woman of the streets. She was known to have a lifestyle of sexual immorality. She walks into the room, doesn't say a word, stands behind Jesus. And the Bible tells us she weeps. She weeps. She, she, she has courageously chosen to be in an environment where she knows that everybody around her is going to disdain her. Everybody around is going to look down on her, but she doesn't care. She's willing to go through whatever it takes so that she might be with Jesus. What does she do? She weeps. Why? Because she's, she's embracing brokenness. She's embracing that in the moment of her valley, in her own reality of having a hidden iceberg in her life, she's not going to run away from the one thing that can heal her. And so what does she do? She embraces at whatever cost the fact, I am broken. She doesn't hide it, not even from uh, other people. She doesn't hide it from herself. I am broken. And she begins to weep so much so her tears falls down touches Jesus' feet, she unwinds her hair, wipes Jesus' feet, she begins to kiss his feet, she begins to touch him. It's terrible now because Simon is going, hmm, I thought Jesus was a holy man. Because if you're a holy man, you would know this lady is from the streets. So why are you letting her touch you? Because the idea in those days was if sin touches holiness, holiness changes. But Jesus teaches us if sin touches holiness, sin changes. Brokenness changes. If a sinful life touches the holy life of Christ, the sinful life has to change. That's, that's what he's, he's getting it to. And so he gives them this parable. Simon, my guy, can I tell you something? Sure. Two people, they owe me money. 500 and another 150. I forgive both of their debts. Who do you think will love me more? Surely, the one, the one who owed you 500. He says, yeah, you guessed it right. What Simon is not getting is that what Jesus is saying is this. Simon, you, the Pharisee, and this woman, you owe me. Both of you. You owe me. But you, Simon, you think you owe me less. You think you have nothing that you, you're supposed to give to me. Therefore, the way you love is little. But this woman knows she's broken. She knows she owes God something. And she comes and she is broken before him. But you, no, no, no. You love little because you think you're fine. You look at the outward things of your life and you go, you know, look at my life. I, I read the scriptures. I quote the scriptures. I memorize the scriptures. I seemingly do all the right things. Therefore, I owe him nothing. I said, no, you missed it. Both of you owe me. But you see, I love both of you enough to cancel your debt, but the problem is I can't cancel a debt that you think you don't have. See, my, my, my fear for our generation, our younger generation, is this. We have so redefined sin that we have 
we have worked ourselves a life that doesn't require to be forgiven by Jesus. We've so changed the boundaries of the scriptures that we no longer need for Christ to say, I forgive you. And so the lives we live, even though marked by sin, we don't even recognize that they're marked by sin because we've redefined good as evil and evil as good. Sounds like Genesis 1 kind of stuff. Maybe Genesis 3. Anyway, Jesus says this. Simon still doesn't seem to get it. But Simon is mostly concerned of touching. Why would a sinful woman touch you? Here's what I want to say. In your life, in your life, you're going to hit a valley. In your life, you're going to hit an iceberg. The way you're going to move through, the way you're going to keep walking is this, is that you need to embrace brokenness like this woman with the alabaster jar. The way that you're going to be able to move through the agony of life and even the confusion of life is that you need to embrace it. You need to go, Lord, I see that I'm broken and I need your help. And the way that this woman does it is this. She takes what is called an alabaster jar. An alabaster jar would be a small jar that would hang right here, like, like a necklace. And what it did is it gave off a beautiful fragrance. Now, if you're a woman of the streets, it didn't just matter how you looked, it mattered the, the, the smell that came from you. And people were attracted to, to the fact that you smelt beautiful, you smelt amazing, right? So what does she do? She takes the one thing that the world deems to be attractive about her and she breaks it over Jesus' feet. What is she saying? From now on, what I deem to make me attractive is following you. I'm going to take, take what has so been attached in my life, has been my identity. Everything that I think makes me me, I'm going to break it before you and I'm going to give it to you completely. And now my identity will come from you. See, when you embrace brokenness, you get healed from attachments. The things you, you think that without this, I am nothing. But when you go, Lord, I need you to heal me. I'm broken without you. You, you get healed from the things you think make you you. How are you doing? Is it okay? Can I still be your pastor just for 20 more minutes? All right. Embrace brokenness. Embrace brokenness. Where in your life do you need to embrace brokenness? Where are you trying so hard to pretend like you're okay and you know you're not? Where are you trying so hard to put up a strong face, but you know, I need Christ in this moment? That is the place. That is the place that requires you to go to Jesus and break the alabaster jar and choose him over the things that make you you. Number two, if you're going to keep walking in the valley, you, know, you don't just need to embrace brokenness, but you also need to embrace wrestling with God. Um, Pete Scazzaro, a guy who wrote a book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, bases his entire book on this one sentence. It is impossible to be spiritually mature while yet remaining emotionally immature. 
It is impossible to claim that you are spiritually mature whilst yet remaining emotionally immature. In other words, you and I know people who live life in this kind of way. They know all the scriptures. They know it back to front. They know scriptures you've never heard of from the book of hesitations. They can quote stuff to you that you're like, I didn't even know that's in the Bible. Yet when they show up in the world, they don't know how to hold their anger. The moment that they are left alone with their spouse, they don't know how to bridle their tongue. Well, the moment you even engage them about something wrong in their life, they think you don't love them. They, they, they lack the ability to have empathy. They don't know how to put themselves in your shoes because the world kind of has to revolve around them. And, and, and they walk around the world not knowing how to have limits. And so when you ask them to a movie and they don't want to go, they'll say yes because they don't want you to be upset at them. They don't have limits. Jesus had limits, by the way. Crowds were pushing in on him, got into his fox walk and went to the mountain, spent time with the Father. That's how, that's how Jesus did it. Jesus was dope like that. He, he, he turned over the tables. He was angry, but he didn't sin. And knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus when he saw the people weeping, what did Jesus do? He wept. He wept. His emotional maturity matched his spiritual maturity. And, and let me say this to you. The reason I'm bringing this up is this, is that in the valley, you get reminded that what you know is more than what's in here. That you've probably heard more Bible in your life than you've lived. And in the valley, you get reminded, Lord, I'm going to live what I believe. Because I don't feel you right now. Things don't seem to be working the way that I want them to work right now. So by faith, I'm going to live what I believe. Whether my circumstances are bad or not. And when you begin to do that, what it begins to alter in your soul is, a, is an emotional maturity that begins to live on the level of your spiritual maturity. You don't live this kind of demarcated life where you know the word, but you actually don't live and believe the word. Are we together? One of the guys that I'm about to speak to you about is found in the book of Genesis. His name is Jacob. Now, there are few people who the Bible speaks about that you kind of read the story and you're like, this man was a bad man. You know, there's a couple of those, but Jacob is one of them. Like, who do you know who came out of the mother's womb already trying to manipulate his brother? He, he had a twin brother, by the way. If you've never read the story, Jacob had a twin brother by the name of Esau. When they were coming out of the womb, Jacob wanted to come out first. And so literally, you see them coming out of the womb and, and the one has, Jacob has his hand out at Esau trying to get Esau down so he can come out first. That's how serious sin is. Yako, your child? <laughs> Sinful from birth. You know, just like mine. <laughs> you only having one. That's fine. No, no, they'll just come out like this. It's going to be great. <laughs> Sinful from the mother's womb are we, all of us. Jacob, a special kind of sinful. Crazy. When he grows up, his dad is about to die. His dad is Isaac. He's, he's a bit blind. He's about to die. He can't see a lot of things. But he knows he has to give a blessing. And, and in those days, you, you give a blessing by speaking. Isn't that interesting? 
that they lived in a world where your word was your bond. That actually what you said was declared as reality. Whilst in our world, if I tell you I'll call you, or if I tell you I'll pray for you, it doesn't actually mean I'll call you or I'll pray for you. It means, hey man, love you. <laughs> so he knows, man, his dad is about to give a blessing and his dad is going to give a double portion of everything to his brother Esau because Esau is the oldest out of the whole family. But Jacob wants this. Jacob wants this. So what does Jacob do? He puts on his brother's jacket and he makes a beautiful, beautiful poiki meal. Now, I would be fooled by this too. I love meat. He comes through and he gives this to his dad and his dad tastes the food and he feels the coat. He's a bit suspicious, but he ends up thinking, man, this is Esau anyway. How terrible must it be for you to feel like you need to be like your brother in order for your father to bless you? Ever felt that way? Ever felt like I need to be more like this person because this person gets blessed by everybody else. Daddy, mommy, they love this person. So if I just act like them, if I just put on their coat, if I just make their poki, maybe I would also get my blessing from my dad. So that's Jacob. He does it. And rightfully so, the moment he does it, he gets the inheritance from the dad and he runs. He bails. And he runs so fast, so far, and the only time he stops, I don't know if this is a prophetic word to anyone here, is when he sees a beautiful woman. Her name is Rachel, sees her from afar, he decides, ooh, I better stop running. This lady's beautiful. So beautiful, he decides, I want to marry her. So he goes and he finds out that Laban, the dad of Jacob, of, of, uh, of uh, Rachel, is actually a cousin of the family and says, listen, Tell me what I need to do. I want to get married to Rachel. She sa- he says, all right, good. Work seven years. And so he does. He works seven years, day and night. When his wedding day comes, the party is so fire that he doesn't even recognize until morning that actually he got married to the older sister. Her name is Leah. Woke up. Leah's eye was just off like this. And he's like, what? No, this is not Rachel. The dad said, well... In our culture, the way we do things is that we can't let the younger person be married without you marrying the old person. So, hey, now what do I need to do? Now, you need to work another seven years. Work another seven years. Jacob is reliving this thing that he didn't get what he thought he should have deserved. So here he is, works another seven years, eventually gets Rachel, and after a while... He realizes Laban is not a great guy, so he makes a maneuver to get some livestock for himself, and he begins to rush off, and the next time he stops, his brother is after him, Esau. And he goes, oh, my word, my brother is about to kill him, kill me. He lets his family all go, and he's left alone. He's in some uh, uh, place in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, this divine being which is probably this Christophany, this picture of Christ to come. This divine being comes into the room and we're not given any explanation, but Jacob just goes and he wrestles. He wrestles with him. You know you're in a place of wrestling when you have been running so hard, desiring breakthrough. Breakthrough doesn't seem to be coming and you're tired. Ever felt that way? It felt like I'm just going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, and I'm hoping one day everything will just fall right. 
My kid will be made right. My studies will be made right. My finances will be made right. You know, my marriage will be, I'm just running. I'm just running. I'm just running. I'm just running. You know, it's time to wrestle with God when you realize everything I've done to get your blessing is not working. And I'm wrestling with you because I don't get it. I did everything you told me to do. I read the books. I did the discipleship connect groups. I started the group. How many people starting connect groups? Right, that lady over there, three of you. I'm starting a group. I'm starting. Lord, I started a group. I went to that church. I'm tithing and my marriage is still failing. What's the problem? What's the problem? Wrestle with God. Jacob does that. He wrestles with God all the way in Genesis chapter 32. But here's what he says. For the sake of time, let me not, let me not read it here. Ah, I just love the text. Let me read it. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. All right, so here's what's happening. Jacob has wrestled with this being, with this person. This being is clearly stronger than Jacob, but is letting Jacob wrestle. And then eventually he touches the hip of Jacob and, and Jacob's hip is permanently out, disjointed, completely shattered, right? But here's something that happens. He, he doesn't just get a blessing. He gets a new name. This Jacob, who, by the way, the word Jacob is the word deceiver, now gets a new name, which is Israel, the word prince with God. Do you know that throughout history, when God identifies himself as the God of Israel, what does he say? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does he not say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Because God chooses in this phrase to identify himself with the brokenness of Jacob. God chooses to be identified as the God of that deceiver. He chooses that. All of history when we remember Jacob, we remember him in light of God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the deceiver. There's things in your life that seem broken, that seem shattered, that seem embarrassing, yet God still identifies himself with you. He's not ashamed of you. He draws closer to you. He pushes himself toward you. How do we know this? Because Jesus himself came in bodily form. He could have stayed in the heavenlies, looking down with privilege, but instead he gave up his privilege. He put on human limitations so that he might draw close to your brokenness, to your shame, to your embarrassment, so that you might actually be made one with him. Jacob wrestles with God. But in him wrestling with God, what he gets, he gets a new name. He experiences God identifying with him in the most darkest places of his life. And God gives him a new name. 
God doesn't just give him a new name. The Bible tells us he actually gives him a blessing. Jacob says, listen, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now, why is he asking for a blessing? It's because all his life, Jacob has been longing for one thing. He's been longing for his father to tell him, I'm proud of you. Here's a blessing for you. All his life. That's why he ran the way that he did. And he's refusing at this moment to walk away from this particular moment without God the Father giving him a blessing. I think one of the reasons that some of you work so hard is that you're still trying to work for a blessing from your father. You're still trying to work for a blessing from your mother. One of the reasons why some of you sleep around, it's not because you find it pleasurable. It's because you think that somehow in between the sheet, there is a blessing for you that you'll finally get affirmation for who you are, that someone will finally look at you in the eye and say, you are enough. And therefore, to sleep from person to person, from couch to couch, to go from one website to the next, what you're longing for is not pleasure. What you're longing for is not just relief. You're longing for someone to say, you're good. You're fine. You're strong. Jacob is longing for that and he's got it in all the wrong places. But this time God is in front of him and he refuses to get the blessing anywhere else than here. How do we know he's so determined? Here's why. In the Old Testament, everybody knew that if you saw God, you would die. What does this divine being say to Jacob? The day, the day is about to break. The sun is about to come out. In other words, you're about to see my face. You're going to die. What does Jacob say? I don't care. Even if I die, I'm going to wrestle until you bless me. Until my life gets defined in the valley by who you say I am. Not who I'm running to become. But who you say I am. You define me today. Some of you need that today. Some of you don't need this word. You, what you need is for God to say, this is who you are. And to live in that to embrace that for your life. He doesn't just get a new name, which meant getting a, a character, a new character, a new inward sense of culture. He doesn't just get a new name. He doesn't just get a blessing. But watch this, he, he gets a new speed. God touches his hip, hip in such a way that he shatters his ability to, to run anymore. Now, the rest of his life, what does Jacob do? He lives his life walking with a limp all the time. You ever been around people who are quietly confident, who have been through life, and when chaos happens, they just quietly come to you and go, it's going to be okay. And you actually believe them because you know they walk with a limp. They've wrestled with God. They know what it's like to have the dark night of the soul and come out of it and yet be walking with the Lord. You want to keep walking in the valley? Learn how to wrestle. Don't, don't pretend that you're not disappointed with God. Talk to him. Engage him. Wrestle with him. I want to propose to you that wrestling with God is part of your spiritual maturity. That if... You live your life without having things to wrestle with God about. That we, we end up living life going from the next thing to the next thing. The next big conference, the next big conference. The next great service to the next great service. 
You have to create your own history with God, your own dark night of the soul. I know this because it happened to Jesus. You see, Jesus, right there in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his dark night of the soul, what did he say? Essentially, I'll summarize it for you this way. Lord, I want to give up. I want to give up. This is too much for me. The cup you've given me, it's way too much for me to do. But Lord, your will. Your will. Do you know what walking with a limp sounds like? Do you know what walking with a limp looks like? It's when you know, Lord, I'm wrestling, and I know I'm not seemingly getting what I want, but I've come to the place of knowing that your will is better than my desires. That's how I walk with a limp. I'm, I'm constantly waiting on God, but yet I'm constantly embracing the brutal facts without losing hope. I'm not losing hope. Everybody needs to wrestle with God. Last one, you need to embrace vulnerability. Embrace vulnerability. Psalm 22, it's the last scripture and I'll be out of your hair. How are we doing? You guys still okay? You guys look very serious for Sunday night. You smile more. All right, Psalm 22. It's a long one. But I'm gonna, I want to read it slowly to you, and I want you to hear these words spoken by David. And you will recognize them as well, spoken by another person in the New Testament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him, yet you are he who took me from the womb, who made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like the pot's shirt and my tongue sticks to, to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. We have to embrace brokenness. We have to embrace wrestling with God. And thirdly, you have to embrace vulnerability. Um, there are a couple of Psalms that actually end with no hope. Psalm 88 is one of them. It has no hope whatsoever at the end of it. In fact, the way that Psalm 88 ends is that the psalmist says this. It basically says that you, Lord, you have completely taken everything away from me. Darkness is my friend. 
That's how Psalm 88 ends, verse 18. Psalm 39, verse 13 is another one. Psalm 39, there is absolutely no hope. Verse 13 says this. He says, I love this. This is one of my favorite. Here's what he says. Look away from me so that I might enjoy my life again. Huh. Love it. Don't look at me anymore, Lord, because now I want to enjoy my life because you keep looking at me. You keep watching over me. Stop watching over me because I want to run wild in these streets. That's what he's saying. I can't enjoy my life anymore unless I'm not with you. Psalm 39, Psalm 88, all of them, all of them, both of them rather, there's no hope in them. There are moments in our lives, if we have to admit and have to be honest, when it's not just dark on the outside, you've lost a job, you've lost a marriage, you've lost a friend, but it's dark on the inside. Ever felt those days? Where, where the idea of having faith feels painful. The idea of hoping and trusting again, waking up in the morning and doing it again and hoping things will work out seems painful. There are moments where the dark night of the soul is so near you, so painful, so real, that you almost feel like, even if I serve God, I'm not going to get anything in return from him. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have ever had that feeling. Because I don't know if we're used to admitting that. I, I remember when I, I, I felt that way. Um, a couple of years ago, I've got three kids. I've been married 14 years in December. One wife, you have to clarify that in South Africa, you know. Um, we have three kids, but actually we've got four. We lost one a couple of years ago. I was at a staff meeting, you know, doing important church things. I got a call. It was my wife. She said, hey, man, I'm at the, at the gynae and I can't find a heartbeat to say we've lost the baby. Quickly left everything I was doing, got into the car, go picked her up. And I remember we were driving, she was weeping. She was weeping. She looked at me, she said, and she wasn't being sarcastic. She was just, she said, so pastor, what purpose does God have for this? I said, I don't know. I don't know. And we went to the next doctor that we had to go to and they said, listen, the, the, because of how far along she is, she actually has to give birth to the dead baby in order for this to work out. So now we had to book places so that she might give birth to our dead child. Our kids had already given them a name. I don't know why they decided they wanted to call these kids Steve. Way too many TV shows, you know what I mean? Like Paul maybe, no, no, no. Steve, right? Here we are. We get there. We give birth. And I see my child. And we did one last prayer. And you would think that's it. But that was not. That same year, we had three other deaths. One of uh, my wife's cousin, who was 26, a chattered accountant, fell from the third story of her house and died that year. We were there. We saw the body, waiting for it to get into the mortuary. Her, he, her brother died of a liver failure. Randomly. He was getting better. And he just randomly died. And then he, her uncle died as well. All of that happened within a span of six months. And I watched my wife. My wife, amazing. Like, I'm the emotional one. I'm the one, like, if something is going wrong, I'm probably, like, trying to figure it out. She's always calm. And she looked at me. She said, man, I feel like my life is like sand, and I can't hold myself together anymore. Dark night of the soul. And um, 
Sorry, give me a second. Uh, that year, I had received the Bible. It's not this one. But from a guy called Jim LaFoon. It was a random prophecy he gave me. And he said, I've never done this before, but here's my Bible. He said, man, the Lord is going to open this word to you. And I remember just, oh, just, just have nights where I just sit, I just hold my, my word, I just hold my Bible. Man, Lord, I don't understand it, but I just remember what you said to me. I'm just, that's it. That's it. And David does that in this text. He says all the things that are happening in his life. He shares all the things that are bad in his life. And he keeps having moments of saying, yet you, yet you, I, I remember. You're the one who took me out of my mother's womb and you placed me on her breast. You taught me how to trust, Lord. You're the one who did it. And then, and then he keeps saying all the bad things that are happening in his life, all the, all the turmoil that's going on. And then he says, yet you, you're the one who took the Israelites out of Egypt. He, he's not just remembering his history with God. He's remembering stuff that God did to other people. That's why when we testify, we, 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 are, we are giving each other a, 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 a bank of testimonies that when we are in our dark night of the soul, we say, Lord, I remember what you did for Yaku. If, if you did it for him, I'm remembering that. I know right now in my life, things are tough, but I remember you did that for him. And sometimes the seasons in your life where the only way you survive is one word. You see, those seasons, you don't pray fa fancy prayers. You don't pray, Lord, thou art loosed. You don't pray those kind of prayers. The only prayers you pray is, Lord, help me. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, thank you. And everything in your life is simplified to the simplicity that God, whatever happens, I just want you. I just want you. The situation can't be fixed. The child is gone. The child is dead. The child's not coming back. It is a painful, dead, hopeless situation. But give me you. Give me you. Dark night of the soul. Psalm 22. Where the same psalm, when you read the first few sentences of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you recognize that from anywhere? Jesus on the cross, he is hanging on the cross, he's completely abandoned, his friends and his family, they all have left him, and he cries out to the father, and he says, Lord, you've abandoned me. It, it, it almost feels wrong, because come on, Jesus, you know, you know God is good, you know God hasn't abandoned you, and you, you even some of the Psalms I spoke to you about, they, they seem kind of off tilter, like maybe we shouldn't be allowed to pray those kind of prayers. But here's what I want to say to you, that regardless of how seemingly awkward those kind of words are, they're still you talking to God. And there are some times in your life where the pain and the lower decks are so painful that the only prayers you can pray are prayers of lament. Where you say, Lord, here's what's happening. I don't understand it. And it's painful. Prayers of protest. Where are you? Where are you? You promised this and you didn't fulfill it. Where are you? What are you doing? Seemingly, the Bible allows those kind of prayers. Because they're still prayers. 
Derek Kidna, a, a commentator on the, on the psalm, says this. He says, these kind of scriptures remind us that God understands and that God knows how desperate men and women pray. He knows. He's not intimidated by your prayers. You see, the prayers we pray of lament and protest in the dark night of our soul, they keep us connected to him. The fact that we are talking to him, it keeps us connected to him. But here's the truth. If Jesus was abandoned on the cross, what it means for you, there is never a day in your life that you are abandoned because he was abandoned in your place. If Jesus was completely left out to dry, completely alone, what it means for you is that in your moments of darkness, you have a friend. What it means for you in the moments of darkness in your life when you feel like no one understands, no one gets it, no one can empathize, that actually you have now and until eternity somebody who actually gets exactly where you are because Jesus was abandoned in your place for you so that you in your feelings of abandonment would never feel alone ever again. That is the beauty of the cross. That is the beauty of the resurrection. As we land the plane, or maybe the ship, I want to remind you, in order for us to keep walking in the valleys of our life, we need to embrace brokenness. We need to embrace the moments and the things in our lives that we go, Lord, I know this is not right. I know I'm not right, and I need you. I need you to help me. I need you to get me out of this. I need you to heal me. I need you to make me whole. We need to embrace wrestling with God. We need to embrace the places in our lives where it's so easy for us to run and keep running and keep running away and keep making spiritual excuses for the emotional pain that only God can heal. And we need to actually stop and go, Lord, I don't want any other blessing. I don't want any other rescue in this situation except for you. So I'm just going to hold on to you. And then we need to embrace vulnerability. We need to embrace in the deep, dark night of the soul in our, in our lives where it feels like everything is hopeless. We need to come to God with lament. Come to God with words that tell him how we feel, where we are, and yet at the same time hold on to the history we have with God. Here's what you did for me. Here's what you did for my friend. Here's what you did for Israel, and I'm just holding on. It's dark, but I'm just going to keep holding. I'm just going to keep holding. Can't let go. So tonight, even before we take communion, I, um, I want to remind you of Christ for a moment. Um, I told you earlier about Psalm 23. Uh, there's actually a part of the psalm that says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know that part? And it's talking about two kinds of things that shepherds do in order to protect their sheep. Uh, they, they would take a rod, a, a, a staff was used never to beat the sheep. A staff was always used to guide the sheep. It, it kind of looked like that, you know those movies with shepherds with that weird stick that looks like this. Can everybody see what I'm doing? And they would carry it and, you know, it's got that curve at the end and you would use that. If a sheep has gone out of, out of the way, you just drag it nicely back into the way. That's what it was used for. And when 
there is an enemy, you wouldn't, the shepherd would not use a staff, but what they would use, they would use a rod. A rod was a much tougher kind of uh, uh, thing that, that, that sometimes they would put metal inside, but basically a rod you would use to fend off the lions, fend off the, uh, the, 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 the wolves, fend off any enemies that come to the sheep. But you would never use the staff and you would never use the rod on the sheep. You'd never do that. You would always use it to guide and protect. But in Mark chapter 15, there's a scripture where it speaks about Jesus. And it speaks about the fact that they, they took a re- rid and they, and they hit Jesus. They beat him. They, this is just before he gets to the cross. And the translation for that word, rid, in there is, a, is, a, is translated staff or rod. They took that which protected the sheep in Psalm 23 and they used that to beat the shepherd in the Gospels. Why? Because beating the shepherd allows you and I to not be beaten. The shepherd being beaten on our place, the shepherd taking on our suffering, the shepherd taking on the bruises that we deserve, him taking it on upon himself means for us that the staff becomes our guiding staff. It no longer is what it was for Jesus because it was, it was only for Jesus so that you and I can have the experience of Jesus being our true shepherd guiding us with the staff, never having to beat us because he took your beating on the cross. So today, as we take communion, what we are remembering, not just together, is this, is that the reason I know that I can walk through this valley, even as I'm embracing brokenness, even as I'm embracing wrestling, even as I'm embracing vulnerability, I can walk through this because you walked through this. And you walked through this on my behalf. There's some of you here today who might not see the things you are hoping for until eternity comes. That's okay. You know why? Because the resurrection means for us that eternity actually is a place that really exists. And that as much as I can't see my son now, I will see him someday. You see, I have a hope that's different from anything else in the world. The reason I can mourn differently from the world is because what the resurrection means is what I am missing out on now in pain and suffering, I will receive later in glory. And I'm cool with that. I wasn't always cool with that. But I'm cool with that now. You good? All right, I'm going to pray for you. I want to take communion. And I want to ask if it's possible, and Yako will lead this moment, that you take communion with somebody today. Um, If I may, Yako, I want want to propose this. Um, I want to give you a few minutes as you're taking communion together to ask each other these few questions. One, what stuck out for you today in this message? What are you going to do about it? And how can I pray for you? So three simple questions. What stuck out for you today in this message? What are you going to do about it? And how can I pray for you? And as you're praying, open the communion, take it together, and pray for each other. Is that okay?